juxtapose, juxtapose, whatever the fuck. Juxtapose. <laughs> juxtapose. I'm too fucking early. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley, edited by Josh Hadley as well. With me, as always, is Peter Barely Awake from He's Our Own, not Siri, but a Surrey Canadian. Yeah, I, I haven't quite been purified in the waters of Lake Minnetonka yet. I don't like Prince, so get he doesn't that one. like you either. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I don't think I'm God. God thinks he's me, all right? <laughs> and you could hear Cecil laughing back there. Yes, uh, I had something to contribute to that, but I laughed and I forgot because uh, <laughs> that's, that's how my brain works lately. You have yeah. goldfish brain? Yes. <laughs> Who? Well, what? What are we doing? We're doing the Adam and Eve promo. Because, see, oh. then you go to adamandeve.com, you use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So tonight we're going to look at editing in films, the power of editing. The reason I wanted to look at this is I recently saw an assembly cut, which is not the same as a rough cut. A rough cut would be like a work print. An assembly mm. cut is just basically where you take all the footage, no editing at all, and you just lay it all out as this is now the f- we have to make a film out of this. And it was horrible. And then you go, okay, well, we trim this, we do some audio editing here, we move this over here, we juxtapose these two these two shots together. It's an actual film now. That's the power of editing. A lot of people think, like, you know, you're making an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. You go in, you shoot all the stuff. It looks like the way it's supposed to, maybe besides visual effects. And then, whoo, it's a movie. Editing's a lot more complicated than that. There's always a big difference between what you shoot and how you put it together. I mean, every every film that anybody enjoys is enjoyed because of how it's made. You know, you don't just stand there with a camera, shoot a bunch of shit, and call it a day. There's audio syncing. There's multiple shots that you've taken that you're putting together in a creative way to keep the pace going. This is how every successful film is done and how you can tell the difference between a good movie and a shitty movie. You know, even movies that are so bad that they're good, like 70s and 80s exploitation films, can have an artful kind of look to them the way uh, even a Fulci film, even to like a Bruno Mattei film can look. Like Rats is edited quite brilliantly. It's it's the, the, the composition of shots. It's no Knowing how to hold on certain shots for mood and when you cut to the next thing to create atmosphere. Editing is absolutely important. All Otherwise, all it would be would just be a series of ongoing shots and, and lines of dialogue that, that kind of look like they're they're going nowhere with no real establishment or anything. Also, no no music or anything. Like, I think the, the example I can make is some of the extended kill scenes they, they show in the Friday the 13th box set, like particularly for Friday the 13th Part 7 where there's no music, they're not really lining up any shots, there's no real like post-effects work done. Boring! You, you can't hear any music, you can hear just like the, the crunching of tree branches and weird ambient noise and you, you can hear the, the cameraman talking to the, 
director a little bit in the background. Like nothing has really been cut together yet. And that's where the power of editing comes in. You see the difference between that and the way Friday the 13th, the new blood was actually cut together. You have music, you have uh, an alternate angle and B-roll footage cut together with the primary footage and all this stuff. And then you get a movie without that. It's just a home video. Editing, in my humble opinion, people talk about, like, movie magic. Editing is really where the magic happens. Because when, I mean, most people at this point know, but there are still some people that just think they go in, they just film a movie from start to finish, and then that's it. Whereas the vast majority of films are done completely out of order, and then sometimes there'll be a gap in between, and they go back for reshoots and whatnot, and the editor has to take all of this and put it together and make a cohesive story out of it and make it, you know, engaging and energetic. And sometimes some things just for whatever reason have to be removed, even if it's a really expensive shot, even if it's something that uh, they put a lot of time and money into. It's like the editor will get with the director and be like, look, I recognize that this is really expensive, but this slows down the film or it's not really essential or we can kind of cut it to, to be five seconds instead of 20 seconds or something. Still get the same effect. I blame a lot of it largely on iMovie because you had like the general notion of editing being not that important because you have people who uh, they have an iPhone and a MacBook and they go out and they shoot some stuff with their iPhone and then they take it and they throw it in. They slap a few transitions on and they think they've got something. Mm. Whereas editing is an art form. A really good example of how editing can make or break a film sequel to the Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project was shot in one way and the studio went back and forcibly changed it, took a lot of scenes and placed them out of order, added in material that didn't need to be there. And the whole film that was released into theaters is this juxtapo- uh, juxtaposed mess. Still, there is a, there's a kernel of like, there's something in here that I enjoy, but I can't quite, you know, figure out like why, because it's such a mess. And then when you go back, like I was able to do and um, take like what the director had initially intended for the film place it back in order remove all the superfluous nonsense and then you see the film as it was originally intended and you're like this is an incredible movie this is really good why didn't we get this and there's a lot of movies that just get destroyed by a bad edit. Uh, they either over edit them. Uh, the most recent Resident Evil, I know a lot of people like groaning because it's, oh, Resident Evil, they're garbage, but they're still enjoyable, fun movies. But the most recent Resident Evil was edited by some guy named Doobie White, which right out of the gate, I was like, mm. edited. I, I haven't counted it, but it's something ridiculous. Like every three frames or something in the film, it, there's an edit and it, it makes it nigh impossible to watch because you have no clue what's going on at all. I think if you were able to get somebody in there who was a competent edit, now I don't know, maybe this guy, they told him to edit it this way. I can't imagine. I'm not really familiar with his other works, but it just, on. I'm going by name alone. It sounds like somebody that was like, obviously using a pseudonym, making this like movie that probably would have been a lot of fun, 
making it completely unwatchable. I used so, to say that I used to say that about 13 Ghosts. There's probably a good movie in there, but I can't see it. Mm. Yeah, 13 Ghosts and it's a shame because the production design in that, the house and the all of ghost the different looks ghosts looks so great. But are th- there's got to be a frame. There's got to be an edit every second in that movie. I don't think a second goes by without them cutting to something else. I don't know why this movie was edited like this. I think the only time where there wasn't a cutaway shot was when the dude gets cut in half lengthwise. They paid a lot of money for that shot. They're getting their money's worth. Well, that's a case of where they actually, they did because, I mean, they showed the the body just rolled down and you saw, like, the back. I mean, that was an amazing shot and that one didn't get destroyed. But, yeah, they, um, I, I don't know what they were thinking with that. But, yeah, an edit, a bad edit can just destroy a film. Editing as we know it has been around since not even the beginning of film. Editing as we, what we think of as editing, what we think of as basic editing was invented in 1903 by Edwin S. Porter. Before that, you know, this is still the silent era, movies were just scenes. You you would have the firemen all getting ready, and then you would have the firemen arriving at the scene, and then you would have the firemen doing something. Mm. He, he was the first one to say, we have the firemen getting ready. Now we cut to the building on fire. Now we cut to the firemen driving there. We cut to more destruction of the building. It gives an urgency, and you have simultaneous action going on. He essentially invented what we think of as modern editing. And then the Russians figured out that editing can also be manipulative. They did an experiment around 1910 where they took, it was just a a man, a, a shot of a man looking kind of sullen and a little bit sad. And they juxtaposed it with hot bowl of soup. And then they also made another edit where they juxtaposed that exact same man in the exact same pose and facial expression with a girl playing with a teddy bear. And then another one with a a woman crying over a coffin. The man's expression did not change. Depending on what that man's expression was juxtaposed with, people got different emotions from him. Oh, he's so happy to see his daughter playing with this. He's looking so longingly at that soup. He's feeling so sullen for that poor woman. But he's got the exact same expression every time. That's the power. (laughs) That is the power of editing and juxtaposition. What you cut to makes as much of a difference as what you're cutting from. And people don't understand that. Editing is called the invisible art form. Because really, as an editor, if you do your job right... Nobody knows you ever did anything at all. It's kind of like when there's CG that you don't know is CG. That's the best CG because it's like it's it's it it just is there. You're like if your attention gets drawn to it, then it's kind of I mean, if you've seen it a few times and you notice things that di- that's different. But that first time you see it, if it's seamless, if you're watching a film and it's edited brilliantly or there's CG that you're not noticing, then that is is doing its job. But it's uh, it's getting harder and harder not to notice lately because God, it's I think lately there are so many more reshoots now for movies. Like the the studio will want to go back and reshoot a scene or rewrite a scene and completely reshoot it. Like I think that was uh, even though I enjoyed it, I think that was a, a pretty big problem with uh, Justice League. As much as I enjoyed the film, you could tell some of the the scenes that were added in. You could tell what was Snyder. You could tell what was Whedon. You could tell for the the reshoots that Ben Affleck had put on a bit of weight. That would have been something you think they would have considered. 
weird. That's something that can bother me a bit because I'm sure it makes the editor's job a lot fucking harder because, okay, now I've got to juxtapose, 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 whatever the fuck. Juxtapose. <laughs> juxtapose. I'm too fucking early. Uh, it's a juxtaposition of these scenes that were shot months ago, maybe even a year ago with she, with scenes that were shot like that week and the actors look a little bit different. You know, they might have, uh, they might still have a bit of, uh, a bit of bloat from when they were uh, partying during the rat party and shit like that. You know, uh, Affleck looked a bit, uh, a bit chunkier as as Bruce in in some of the scenes in um, in Justice League as opposed to some of the other ones. And you can tell that uh, that's clearly due to uh, reshoots. Some of the the lighting is a bit different because they might get a different director to do it. I think it's becoming so much more challenging now for editors to look like they haven't edited anything, like they didn't actually do anything, which is the power of editing because studios are. are meddling i think so much more you also have this thing where james cameron said he found on terminator 2 every single frame counts because on terminator 2 he had a problem the the film was running over two hours as we know from the director's cut his contract said he had to deliver a film under two hours long so he he could not he you know he had his director's cut which i think is like clocks in at like 220 and he could not figure out what he needed to cut so he he tried an experiment he told his editor do we actually need every frame you know there's 24 frames in a second so he had his editor do an experiment by taking out one frame out of every 24 and seeing what that would work and that that dropped the film by almost eight minutes in total oh, wow. but it was immediately noticeable that there were not only frames missing but that scenes were shorter than they should be even just by a, you know a glance or two from john to arnold or whatnot and so he put them all back in and he found every single one of these frames matter if the scene is one frame too long the scene doesn't work if it's one frame too short it feels like there's something missing mm. so every single one of these frames makes a difference and that's where the editor is a uh, spielberg outright says his editor is never an employee it's a collaborative partner because he because mm. spielberg is very open a film is not made on the set it's not made when you write the script it's made in the editing room that's where a movie is made because he said he would cut a movie spielberg he would make his cut and then he said he would have his editor come in and fix it because he's too close to the edit. He's like, oh, I spent so much time on this scene. I, I really want this. I re and the editor's like, you don't need it. And he would always defer to his editor. And he said they have saved him from wrecking some of his own movies. That's the power of an editor. When not to not to put myself on the same level as uh, some of the the greater professional editors, but coming just from my personal experience and the products and stuff that I've worked on, when you're editing something, the you know frames matter is is just you know it trumps everything. I'm like you have no idea. I will go in and I'll do my I'll I do like multiple edits of things. I'll go in I'll do like my rough edit and then I go. Go in and clean it up and then i go in and i clean it up more and then i go in and i i watch it again will either add a couple frames or take out a frame or something and it's amazing how something will have a flow if it has you know this many in it and then it flows better if you take a frame or two out it, it is just you you wouldn't think that it would have that much of an impact but it makes a gigantic difference especially if you're trying to do something something with comedy comedy is all about timing and if you deliver that line you, you know a, a frame or two early it just doesn't work but if you 
leave that extra beat in there and something comes out, it totally works and it lands. And it's a certain magic to it. You really have to know what you're doing and have to feel it out and understand, okay, this is going to work. This isn't going to work. So uh, when you've got somebody like Cameron who understands that, who gets that you can't just cut little bits out here and there and expect that it's going to work. There's a certain timing that works on action, that works on comedy, that he works on drama. It, uh, it is a certain level that needs to be in there. If you just have everything rushed out or you leave too much spacing in there, then it's just going to be a mess and you would maybe take a movie that could have been a classic that ends up just not working and uh, say, you know, Spielberg gets it and I'm glad. Even Spielberg's like, quote unquote, bad movies, there's still a large element of artistic merit to them. They might not be good, but you can never say that they're shot bad. Well, actually, even more than comedy, sex scenes. Now, I'm not talking pornography, so I'm not talking insertion. I'm not talking adult films. I mean, like, sex scenes in R-rated movies. Every editor out there will tell you those are the ones that require the most editing. Because if you have the wrong sh- the wrong choice of shots or the wrong length of shots, a very erotic sex scene be- can become laughable. They said when it comes to sex scenes in, R- in, you know, mainstream movies, that is the most important and hardest thing to edit. Even more than comedy, I would think. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, the way you edit something can establish what kind of mood that it has. Like, obviously, action films are shot on a very big scale, you know, obviously, usually very widescreen, very bold looking. It needs to be very big, very explosive. Comedy, as Cecil said, it's all about timing. If, if it's off by even a, even a millisecond, it can end up being not nearly as funny as it could be. Horror or even drama always uh, is, is about the mood. You know, with, with horror, you have to establish, uh, a frightening mood, something that's, that's tense. You have to be able to use a long shot while still relying on editing in a clever way as well. And even sex scenes, sure. I mean, you can, there's all sorts of ways you can edit a sex scene. You could do it, uh, in an erotic way. You can do it in like perverted rough kind of way. You could do it in even a comedic way. Like, you know, there's a lot of sex scenes in teen comedies or in artsy fartsy Italian films and shit. There's all sorts of ways to do everything and establish a different mood for what you're trying to achieve. If you don't end up achieving what the what the genre is, you know, it's it's going to look weird where you have like a movie that's meant to be sort of an erotic thriller and you have a sex scene in it that's like something out of a teen romp. It's, it's not really going to be what it's meant to be. You also have an editor can either they can both wreck a good movie with the wrong editor or they can save what might have been a bad movie. Go look at Richard Chu winning the Oscar for editing Star Wars. Have you guys ever seen what George Lucas's edit was? His original two and a half hour edit, and you know, there's all those deleted scenes we've seen from the original Star Wars. Kubrick actually told him after seeing this, this is unreleasable. And this was oh, man. George Lucas's, this is the, what I want to release. This is my vision. Richard Chu came in and said, let's fix this. <laughs> then the film goes and becomes the Star Wars we know. There's a video out there right now on YouTube about how Star Wars was saved in the edit, and that it shows you, based on Lucas's script and, and some interviews with Richard Chu and all that, just how bad Lucas's cut of Star Wars actually was. Oh, and man. keep in mind, before becoming a director, George Lucas was an editor professionally. So that makes you go, what 
the hell happened? That's that doesn't come as much of a of a surprise to me because when you let Lucas uh take the reins 100%, you get the prequels, Very true. which is armchair editing against a blue screen. So it, it doesn't surprise me that his edit wasn't nearly as impressive as what we got for New Hope or with uh you know Empire Strikes Back and stuff. I, I think he's more a lot more of an ideas man than he is uh, a technical editor or director. I think he's really solid with ideas, but I think it was definitely the right choice to get somebody else to edit A New Hope. Otherwise, we may have just gotten another, like, forgotten B-movie. The thing is, and this is going back to, like, what you said with Spielberg, uh, as a director, sometimes you get a little too close to the material that you've done, and you don't see the flaws, especially if there is already a release date for the movie, which is one of the problems we run into now. You get, uh, they'll put together a cut, and then and the director will be standing, you know, very firm on it. And it's always good to have somebody who you trust, somebody who you that's why a lot of really great directors will have an editor that they always work with, because they know that this is a guy who is familiar with the way that they do stuff and will be able to excise the material in the film that really doesn't need to be there, as opposed to uh, deferring to a studio who is going to be like, well, this movie's two and a half half hours long uh we need to remove all of the dialogue we need to get rid of all that character development because it drags the movie down when in actuality sometimes there has to be a mix all right maybe cut this scene here of dialogue that's redundant but also we need to cut this action scene because like i said earlier it's expensive but it doesn't really need to be here it slows the film down even though it's an action scene and it was expensive it's just it's overindulgent at that point kind of like the um um, the fight scene, the Matrix uh, sequel, where Keanu is fighting all the Agent Smiths. It's like, hey, this is really cool. Hey, this is going on for like 15 minutes. Like, hey, it's. I, I felt this. That's that's one of the problems I had with Wonder Woman. That fight scene with Ares at the end just kept going on and on and on and on. And it's like, okay, she throws him into a building. He throws her into a building. She throws him into a building. He. Okay, it's like they've done this dance like six times now. You sure you're not I, talking about Man of Steel? No. I'm talking about Wonder Woman. The fight with Ares. I Man of Steel, that was like... Oh, no, Man, Man of Steel that. was unforgivable. Was, but, no, no, it wasn't. It was no, good. No, it was not. Um, yeah. yeah. The, I can see the, the fight scene in Man of Steel going on a while, but the fight scene between Wonder Woman and Ares, that was pretty quick. That wasn't no, it that wasn't. Long. It just kept going on, and I'm like, oh, my God, how many times are they going to throw each other into another object here? Look, you you know Wonder Woman is, is the chick, right? And the guy is Superman with the cape. He was throwing Zod through buildings for like 15 minutes yes i saw wonder woman too that and was that long of a f- that, am i wrong cecil i will this is one of those rare occasions where i will partially agree with josh i don't um, remember that being that long because i just watched it again recently i got my my wife to check it out we love the film and i will i will admit though that fight scene just ending, keeps going in the ending fight scene i personally would have sheared a few maybe a minute or two out of there because it did it's like okay we kind of get what you're going for here and but then so so by the time she finally stands up and throws a tank at him and really just comes at him it would have been a little bit more impactful if it would have happened a little sooner but i think that overall it didn't that was the only part of the film where i was like okay you know you could have cut this a little bit you also have the power of editing no this is a weird thing tv has kind of caught up with movies in this aspect but you used to be able to tell like when, when you were watching something on tv uh, a movie on tv you'd immediately 
immediately be able to go, this was theatrical, or go, this was a TV movie, just based on the editing. I brought this up before, but Joe Bob Briggs absolutely is right when he points out, like, the Mark Harmon miniseries, The Deliberate Stranger from the 80s. He says, oh my god, can you tell this was originally a TV miniseries? Because you've got the scene, the scene is a simple scene. You got the two cops going up to a woman's house to tell her that they found her daughter's body. He says, in a movie, you would have the cops pull up, and then you would cut to them inside telling the mom. This is a TV movie. You have the cops pull up, each one get out, each one open their door, each one shut their door, each one walk up to the house, ring the doorbell, wait, her open the door, them tell them, tell her who they are, them go inside, and then cut to them telling the mom. He's like, in a movie, this would have been a 20 second scene. In this, it's a three and a half freaking minute scene. My God, can you tell the difference in the editing of a TV movie versus a theatrical movie? Oh, absolutely. Not as much nowadays. I mean, TV looks so weirdly cinematic lately. A lot of, a lot of TV shows like, uh, obviously Breaking Bad did, you know, the Sons of Anarchy, a lot of the Netflix shows really look more like movies than a lot of movies do lately, which is really weird. But back in the, you know, in the, the 70s and the 80s and the, the early 90s and stuff, you, you really could tell when something was a, a made for TV film and when something was meant to be shot theatrically, but ended up going to TV and was, was edited a bit differently. I mean, if you compare a Braxis with a, a typical Roger Corman film, like even though a Corman movie is, is so low budget, it still looks like it could play in theaters, even though it's like super low budget. Whereas a Braxis looks like it was shot for TV with TV lenses to meant, meant to be in like full frame. Sometimes that's always a giveaway too is the aspect ratio as well. Like if it was meant to be, if it was meant to be made for TV back then, at least it was likely going to be a little more narrow looking. It was going to be a little more soft focus so it could translate better to, to smaller screens. Whereas if it was meant to be theatrical, chances are it was shot in uh, in, in widescreen and in, in panoramic so you could actually put it uh, on a theater whereas uh, TV not so much it was uh, a lot easier to tell back in the day I don't even know do we even have TV made for TV movies anymore I guess made for demand kind of is Lifetime CBS and all that still do that crap they, there's still lots of TV made for TV movies nowadays I guess I just don't watch TV I don't notice them I notice things a lot more uh, being an editor than bef- like when I started learning how to do this and was taught notice things it's like anything you know you do something enough you go to school and you learn how to do something and then you notice things that maybe other people don't notice so uh, a lot of times if I'm watching something and I'm not maybe not really enjoying it. I'll start to think, all right, I would have trimmed that. All right, they could have cut that out. All right, that didn't need to be there. All right, oh my God, are we going to film the entire pulling out of the driveway and driving off? Like, it, it, <laughs> it does not need to be there. There's so many times where it's like, okay, cut to them walking out to the car and then, you know, maybe a shot of an airplane landing. We'll mm. fill in the blanks. That's exactly what Tarantino had to learn. He says, like, on Pulp Fiction, when he shot the date between Uma Thurman and John Travolta, he said his cut was almost a date, and I'm going to quote him, in fucking real time. Oh, man. So he's like, because he was so in love with the footage, his editor had to almost lock him out of the editing room and cut it down to what you see in Pulp Fiction. That's a lot of the problem sometimes. Joe Dante says it perfectly. You cannot edit your own film. Because Joe Dante, you know, was an, an editor for Roger Corman before he got to direct. And he said he was great at editing other people's movies. But then when it came to editing his own movies, he's like, no, 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 I, I love this shot. You know, and 
minutes and an unnecessary shot. And, no, 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 that shot's needed for this. And, and the editor would be like, no, it's not. That same information's given over here. You are too close to it as a director. You usually, well, the director should have guidance. There's no doubt about that. Look at someone like Albert Pune. He's never been allowed in the editing room for one of his films. And let's see, Albert Pune releases director's cuts of all his films, and guess what? They're all better than the versions released. Isn't that funny? <laughs> but but then Tarantino is also the example of when a director gets too much editing control. Look at Death Proof. Not only did yeah. he shoot the missing reel, but he put it back into the film because the footage was just too good, unquote. He was so in love with it, he didn't realize that footage, that missing reel, real kills that movie but he's like man but i'm such a genius it's just so good you gotta see it tarantino as much as i love him has always been a gigantic walking ego and that is both good and bad is he talented yes does he crib from a lot of other sources yes but he has never been one to really shy away from his own quote-unquote brilliance so he is somebody who absolutely needs to have somebody there to keep him in check there are a lot of really famous directors that just need another voice there some of them don't some of them uh are able to see all right this maybe doesn't work this needs a little fixing here and there okay i'm fine with that going out but tarantino is absolutely somebody who needs somebody to kind of keep him in check uh, lucas is another one who uh you just you need that other person there that will keep you in line now there needs to be a give and take you know it can't just be this person overrides the other one there needs to be okay this is great all right we need to find the balance in between the two ridley scott actually says picking the right editor is like picking a mate because you're going to be spending days and weeks in a room with this person and you guys better be able to work together so he, he's, he considers editing a movie like a short-term marriage <laughs> absolutely i mean that's one of the more intelligent things that ridley scott has said it's absolutely true. he said it in the 90s does that make a difference ah that makes a big difference because if he said that recently i'd be like what he he doesn't have dementia yet yeah um i i don't know what happened to the editor on uh covenant but uh that's a whole other thing well, the door it's really difficult there because you absolutely can't have a bias you know you have to be able to have that disconnect from okay well i just shot this but i also have to you know look at it objectively you know does this work even though i shot it even though i like this scene does it work as a film which is why some directors just can't do it you know quentin tarantino is absolutely too arrogant about his own stuff but there are directors who understand what they can and can't do like which is as you said albert pune's director's cuts tend to be better than, than the theatrical cuts this is usually how you can tell when when the director had a better vision about their film than the studio did. When the director's cut ends up being better than the theatrical cut, you maybe should have let the director do it. And, and sometimes you don't even necessarily get that in just a director's cut versus a theatrical cut. There there are some movies where look at something like Highlander Endgame. Okay, it's not a good movie, but you've got five different cuts of that going around, and they all have, they all have ninety percent the same footage. There are five different movies out there, aren't there? I mean, just look at how much the different edit changes 
Highlander Endgame. There are five different films out there all made from the same footage, aren't there? And if you look at the trailer, there's so many scenes that never, I don't think, even made it into any of the cuts. They were never meant to because that was a bait and switch. Just trailer, trailer shots. What, what, there, there was that shot where, um, uh, Bruce Payne gets like cut in half and becomes like two yeah, Bruce Payne. Yeah, there, there's, there's all that stuff that was shot literally to, uh, I'm quoting the producers, to make the trailers more exciting. That was never meant to be in the movie. The trailers are more exciting. But you know, you, you look at something like that and you go, how can you have so many different essential movies out of the same amount of footage. That right there is the power of editing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's not only the power of editing in a movie, but it's the power of editing in a movie trailer because something has to make you want to go see it, right? Be it a cool poster, which is the case for you know the video store days. You also need to see a trailer or a teaser or something that makes you want to go see the film. And a lot of the time, that is complete hogwash, nonsense, bullshit, because they, they edit a movie together in the trailer that's a completely different film from what you're actually going to see. That should be considered criminal, in my opinion. I think you should use the shots that were actually intended for the film to to put your film out. You should not be filming exclusive for trailer scenes. This is just malarkey. The original Dawn of the Dead is also the same thing. Yeah, okay, you've got the two different cuts from Romero, which you know are only minor differences, in my opinion. They're still the same great movie. Have you ever seen Argento's Zombie cut the one released over in europe i haven't seen that one that's one of the cuts i haven't seen it's basically the same movie with all the characters sucked out of it it's a a 90 remember romero's version is almost two hours long argento's is basically a 90 minute action movie oh wow and you just kind of look at it and if you're familiar enough with dawn of the dead you go all the stuff is there but yet it's not there, you know? It's like it's a totally different film just by removing a couple of minutes of scenes totally changes the entire film of Dawn of the Dead. I, I don't think I could watch that version because I love the characters in that film. We're 20 minutes into Argento's cut and we're almost an hour into Romero's cut. Oh, wow. There's so much missing. Uh, you, you know I love Argento, but I mean, you know, okay, he prob he probably knew what he was doing because the movie made a ton of money in Europe. Ma- yeah. You know, I think I think he had that whole European audiences won't accept you know, Romero's cut. It's too slow, too, you know, too much dialogue. That's so weird. You'd think he, he might have known what he was doing. You'd think they would accept that. That's a strange uh, opposite to how it is today. European audiences tend to prefer longer shots, more dialogue, more mood, and American audiences just want the big, big explosions and shit. That's have you, have you ever a very seen, strange uh, disconnect. Have you ever seen Terry Gilliam's Brazil, yeah. the, the American cut of that? Uh, no, I don't think I've seen the American one. It's borderline a parody of Terry Gilliam's. Oh, it had an absolute Hollywood ending. Universal wanted a happy ending where they wind up together and wind up in love instead of the very downer ending the actual movie has. Yeah. You know, they, they, they changed, they changed scenes around, they changed the tone, they changed the music. In Europe, Brazil is winning awards and being nominated for the European version of the Oscars. And in America, it's bombing with a critical score all the way in the toilet. And you just <laughs> ask yourself, what happened? And then you see, you go, Oh, these are <laughs> radically different cuts of the same movie. Or let's just stick with Europe for a moment. Life Force. Have you ever sat through the American VHS and theatrical release cut of that? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure I've only seen the director's cut. 
I didn't understand why Life Force was getting all of these accolades at the time over in Europe. And, and apparently the critics also got the European cut. That's not what was released in theaters, though. So oh. for Life Force, I'm like, I rented it and went, what the hell movie did they see? Then years <laughs> later, when I see the European cut, I'm like, that makes total sense now. Oh. They are two different films, and they're only 15 minutes difference in runtime. <laughs> and they're two totally different movies. Basically, the American cut made sure to leave in all of the nudity, even if it didn't make sense. Oh, it, 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 it's, it's a lot of the character development, a lot of the story, a lot of the intro is yeah. cut out. It, and, and even even the music is different. Mm. It even has a different score. It, th those are two different movies. Yeah, I don't think I'll be checking out the uh, American theatrical cut anytime soon. But then you also have things like, like Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Now, Touch of Evil is an amazing movie. Nobody can dispute that. And then, of course, you have the pseudo-director's cut that came out later, which makes it an even more amazing movie. But we're never going to see the real director's cut of Touch of Evil. Because, you know, obviously Orson Welles died in 1985. When Peter Bogdanovich oversaw the re-edit to try and put it back into what Welles had, quote, intended, based on Orson Welles' editing notes, a lot of that footage couldn't be found. Right. So... For Touch of Evil, the closest we're ever going to get is what's out there as a pseudo-director's cut because it's what Wells intended the movie to be. I, I think I think that's such a shame that, that it happens like that. Orson Welles helped invent what we think of as MTV-style editing. Now, technically, this the French New Wave used some of these techniques, but not the way Wells did in the 70s movie F for Fake. If you watch that movie, you would swear that this is an, uh, an 80s MTV movie music video for 90 minutes he invented mtv style editing and doesn't get any credit for it but then you also have edits can also lie to you they can manipulate you as i said with the russians earlier look at psycho you think you see janet lee naked you think you see so much violence in that shower scene you don't there's not a single frame of her naked boobs or butt and there's only three frames of a knife actually entering her body. But there are people who swear they saw Janet Lee naked and saw Janet Lee get stabbed in that movie, but they didn't. Why? The editor. The showing the power of editing and showing how that uh, sometimes less is more. Sometimes your brain will fill in the blanks, and when you don't see something, you think you saw something. Really, once again, is is just incredibly important. You know, the shower scene in Psycho is just is a perfect example of that. Just a fantastic edit. I mean, the way that like you, you know the hand grabs the uh, shower curtain and the the blood going down the drain and all of that is just done so effectively. And along with the music, the musicality of it, the ring, ring, ring is in sync with like the knife going in. It's just it's done perfectly. That should be like a textbook example for uh, like a proper edit. It's it's the power of editing um, just in general. And it's not only movies like uh, Psycho, but you've also got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which people remember being super gratuitous. But if you go back and watch it, it has barely any gore in it. It's it's what the movie is making you think you're seeing with really well-timed uh, quick edits. You know, you'll see a, a hammer come down or you'll see a chainsaw come at somebody. You'll see somebody scream. You'll see a little bit of blood splatter and you'll remember in your mind that you you saw limbs being severed and people getting decapitated and all this really horrible uh, gratuitous violence, but it really doesn't happen that way. It's, it's all um, mood using uh, its advantage to get that shock factor over you and it makes you think that you're seeing a lot more, with which is 
the exact same thing that they did with, with Psycho. You remember seeing a far more violent film than it actually was because it was so effective as a horror film, which is proof that a horror movie doesn't need to be super gory or super violent or anything. It just needs to make you think that it is. But you can also, you have, and this is where I will attack Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan uses editing in a way to fool you, in a way to, in a way to cheat you. Because the, the movie opens, you have the old man in the cemetery, and then they go through his iris and come out the iris of Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks' character, that's film language. And then at the end, when they iris back in and you find out that's Ryan, you go, wait, that you just used editing to literally cheat me and lie to me. Because then you also go, wait a minute, how is Ryan remembering events he wasn't present for? <laughs> because Spielberg wanted to get you with a, ha-ha, you thought that was Tom Hanks. And he used editing to pull a fast one on you. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, I don't think that's a cool way to use editing. I think he thought, ha-ha, I did that, I pulled the rug out from under you. And I went, ha-ha, Spielberg, fuck you. Eh, I don't know. I think it was just uh, it was a way of presenting something different. I don't think that that's necessarily. It was cheating. Uh, it's it, it kind of, but still, it uh, it sends you in one direction and then it comes back and it's another thing. So I didn't uh, I didn't particularly mind it, especially because the strength of the film was so strong to begin with that uh, I'm not going to split hairs over a little a little twist. Of you thinking that it's Tom Hanks, but it's really, uh, you know, Private Ryan. So I, I don't think that that's really, uh, a, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Uh, and I mean, and cheats are used all the time in filmmaking. Red herrings, ways of editing things to make you think one thing and then it's another yeah. thing. So I don't really see that as being a bad thing. I think you're just being a grouch. I think there are movies that do it better, though. You have American History X that makes you think it's being... That makes you think it's being narrated by Edward Furlong, and then you realize that narration was actually just the thesis or essay or whatever that that he wrote, which makes uh, you know him getting shot at the end uh, that much more tragic. Exactly, American History X. I didn't feel like I was cheated. I felt like I was lied to for Saving Private Ryan, and and, and I was because. Basically, Spielberg said, everything you know about filmatic language, I'm just not going to do it like that because I want to surprise you. And that's not a good kind of surprise. Look at, like, I bring it up all the time so you can knock it off your Josh Hadley 1201 Beyond scorecard, To Live and Die in L.A. breaks all of the editing rules. If you didn't know better, you might almost think Friedkin didn't know what he was doing. Usually, you would have a, a shot reverse shot of two characters talking. When William Peterson is talking, the camera would be on him, and you'd have the shoulder of who he's talking to, like John Pankow, over in the other corner, right? No, to live and die in L.A., does the opposite of that. It shows you the person being spoken to on the face. The, the, the scene where, where William Peterson pulls up to the strip club. Usually, you would see him pull up, cut to him inside, and then you'd hear the dot, and then they would start the dialogue. In this, you see him pull up, walk in there, and then it stays on the outside of the strip club, and you start hearing the dialogue for almost 20 seconds before it cuts to him inside. If you didn't know better, you'd think Friedkin lost his mind in editing, but in a movie like that, it really helps the frantic, 
off-center nature, doesn't it? Absolutely. Again, taking chances and doing things with editing can make a massive difference. There's one, I want to bring this up because this was something that uh, infuriated me recently. There was a movie that came out uh, last year, I believe it was last year, called Life. And Life was essentially uh, an alien clone, but it still was good in its own way. Uh, If you don't want to get the ending spoiled, uh, jump ahead a few seconds. Essentially, that the at the very end of the film, there's two uh, escape pods and there's two there's a person in each escape pod and the one escape pod had the alien in it and the other one didn't and what they were doing was one was going to be shot out into space and like everyone was you know and like the world was going to be saved and the other one went down to earth well the way that they shot it or I should say more so the way that they edited it was that they were trying to make you think that the one went out into space with the alien in it and the other one with the character that was going to live went down to Earth and everything was hunky-dory. But they did it. They left a few too many frames in there. So so the big reveal that they were setting up for the end, you knew was coming by a freaking country mile because you saw the wrong one was going down to Earth. And then they dragged it out. And I'm like, we know it's the alien. We know it's the <laughs> alien. We know it's the... And then finally they do this big reveal and No! And I'm like, oh, if they would have just trimmed it just a little bit earlier or done it a little bit differently, that would have been a great, like, holy crap, surprise ending. But instead, it, they they ruined it. And it's a shame because I think that that would have just that little minor change would have elevated a movie from being like pretty good to being very good. You also have where editing can can telegraph things that are supposed to be a surprise. How many times have you guys been watching it, like an action movie or a horror movie and all of a sudden they cut to a close-up of the character's feet and you're like, hey, look, someone's about to come out from under the steps. Gee, what a surprise. Or all of a sudden, all, you know, the characters will be framed in the center of the frame and then all of a sudden there's way too much room on the side of the frame and one character smushed to the edge. Oh, so the villain can jump out and be in frame and you're like, really? You tell after this by the edit. I, I know exactly what's going to happen as soon as you cut to a certain shot. Shouldn't the <laughs> edit be a little more subtle? Or if it's a Tarantino movie and they edit to someone's feet, that's just Tarantino and his whole foot thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think uh, establishing mood in a horror film is an art form. And there's a lot of movies where you can tell when something is about to happen. Like if you see the – it can be done in a in a clever way if you see like the, the killer's feet kind of step out from a frame. Um, and you can, you can establish certain shots pretty well that way if you edit it right and if you don't show too much. And you, and obviously somebody's going to die, especially if it's a slasher film or if it's like a, a crime thriller or something like that. Somebody's going to get knifed or shot or, or whatever the f- um, so you, you have to establish that the killer is around somewhere, but there is always that cheap technique of, oh, there's a lot of open space right there. So obviously somebody's going to jump out or somebody's going to, or, you know, they're opening the medicine cabinet when they close it, somebody's going to be standing behind them. Like, I think there's too many tropes that are definitely overused and not enough people just rely on raw tension in a horror film, which tends to, to work so much better than anything else. Like what was a good one that I saw recently? 
was uh it follows established mood uh perfectly then that was yes. literally just people getting followed around for, for a lot of the scenes and it was scary as shit it was really well done because they didn't throw things at you bombastically and in, in a completely cliche way like oh feet are stepping into the frame or oh there's a lot of base here so clearly someone's going to show up or you know the whole medicine cabinet thing no it was just just things would show up and that's why it was great there's a scene in it follows that is absolutely brilliant camera is panning into uh the the, the lead character and it, it moves and it zooms around and then it stops on her and then it pans in very slowly. And the brilliance of that is now you're seeing the follower moving towards her. Mm. It's like, cause you don't know like who the follower is going to be at any yeah. given moment. And that was like, Oh my God, you know, she's completely unaware that this thing is just coming at her mm. and a uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic shots, fantastic editing. Just, I mean, that was my number one film of the year, uh, that year by far. Yeah. It was just amazing. And I was infuriated, but oh, it's boring. Nothing happens. It's like, oh, then then go watch Transformers. You, you, there's a way the editor. No, this this is both where the editor and the director need to be collaborative. The editor can use the type of shots to try and t- to try and subtly inform the audience. Look at a movie like Seven. Take a, a relatively mundane scene in the movie Seven. The dialogue scene in Arlie Ermey's office between Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Earlier on in the movie, when the characters do not trust one another, it's all wide shots. They're apart. They are not together on this. Later on, once the, once they learn to trust one another, you'll notice it's all tighter shots. It's all tighter focus. Now they're closer, both physically and emotionally in the movie. Editor is manipulating you into following the emotions of the characters. That is great editing. Oh, Seven is just uh, is brilliant. Love that movie, even though it has uh, Kevin Rapey Spacey in it, unfortunately. But at least well, he's playing then, a, at least he's playing a lunatic, so you can buy it even more than you could before. Yeah, fantastic. One of those rare occasions where you're watching a movie, have no idea what's happening, and I mean, it's been unfortunately the ending has been parodied to death, so it doesn't have quite the punch that it had back in the day. But still, just an amazing film. Uh, great performances, great editing, uh, great directing. Uh, just our, our a complete rarity. Speaking of Seven's ending, that is also brilliant editing. There are people who swear the DVD and Laserdisc and VHS versions cut out scenes. They swear they remember seeing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in that box, her severed head, and they're technically right. Because see, what happened is there's a one-frame flash of not her severed head, of just a shot of her from earlier in the film when they opened the box. And it makes people think that they saw her severed head in the theatrical release, and they never did. That's the power of editing. And also, they they did actually make a prosthetic head that they never used. Right, that they never used it, up, so that I doesn't count. In, in another movie later on. So I think that adds to people thinking that they saw something because, well, if the prop existed, why didn't they use it? But then you also have, you know, Brad Pitt movie Fight Club. Look at all the subliminal Tylers that are there for one or two frames earlier on. Yeah. When I first saw that in the theater, I didn't know what was going on. And then you go, that was kind of brilliant because the character is seeing this... Tyler character subliminally, and so is the audience. You just don't know it. 
And plus, it's also it also ties into uh, what the Tyler character and what the narrator are talking about later about like you know when Tyler was working in a movie theater and they're talking about like cigarette burns and stuff like that. It makes you kind of remember the opening shot and thinking that maybe that's all it was. Maybe it was just flawed kind of footage but no it was actually tyler being introduced in like the opening 10 minutes of the film the editor of fight club even thought he tried to help david fincher fix a mistake that wasn't in there because mm. he he hadn't read this you know the full script he didn't know jack and tyler were the same person so in the car crash scene brad pitt is driving and edward norton is in the passenger seat but then he's he went up to fincher and he's like you got to reshoot this you've got edward norton coming out of the driver's side after the accident and fincher had to be like no that's intentional. But the, the fact that the editor noticed that shows he was doing his job. And if you take the uh, Fight Club and go through it frame by frame, there's a lot of penis in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of there's, subliminal penis in there. Yes, yes. There's there also a lot of Pepsi in there, too. You know, for a movie about anti-consumerism, to have a lot of Pepsi product placement is sort of mixing the message a little. Well, well it's not I, even really about anti-consumerism, if you think about it, because Tyler ended up being the bad guy. That, well, see, that was the, the, the irony of it, really, yeah. was that it still needed that to be funded. But a lot of people misunderstand Fight Club. There's so many people that think, you know, oh, man, Tyler's philosophy. I, I still hear this bullshit today. It's like, you guys do know Tyler's the bad guy in the movie, right? I think uh, it's it's a movie that a lot of uh, MGTOWs misinterpret. <laughs> they, they think it's a very anti-woman movie. It's like, you know Tyler's the bad guy? You, well, you it's like... That? It's like Scarface. A lot yeah. of people that think that he's the, you know, he's the hero. No. And you go, did you not see the last 10 minutes? Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's not the hero. He's, he's the life of bad sister. guy to a he's certain a degree. He's a bad guy but... with, uh, with a moral code. You know, he won't like kill children and he's got like f some family values, but he also murders his best friend because his best friend's fucking his sister. I mean, that's, he also uh... wants to fuck his sister too. <laughs> So, all right, on that note, and we'll see how this edit ends up in the edit, because I edit this show. Where can people find Peter about to go to work? Uh, you can find me, uh, drudgingly about to go to work, but usually you'll, you'll find me at any time, really, at, uh, Cinematica on Twitter, or at Facebook, the Cinemasochist, or YouTube, the Cinemasochist, or on 1201beyond.com. Killing time? Killing time instead of working, because that's, uh, that's the American dream, or Canadian You're not dream. not in America. Though. Where can we find CC? Uh, you can find me at uh, goodbadflicks.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And I don't remember who said it, but a very smart person once said that uh, any movie could be made better by ending with Gwyneth's head in a box. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.